Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming out on such a beastly afternoon. I don't know if your attendance at this, the sixth 2015 Lyle Lecture, means that you're a glutton for punishment, or I am. In my last lecture, I tried to look in a new way uh, at Thompson's Caesar. One of the premises of these lectures has been that objects make their meaning in relation to other objects. Throughout these lectures, I've been trying to understand the textual artifact in history. I've been trying to come closer to apprehending how the makers of the textual artifact would themselves have understood what they were doing in relation to other constellations of objects, into what, in relation to the market, in relation to what had come before, in relation to contemporary cultural and productive practice. Today, I'd like to look at the world of abridgments and to try to come a little bit nearer to understanding one abridgment by examining it in relation to the ubiquity of abridgments in the 18th century. I begin with a 1601 octavo abridgment of Ortelius's great atlas. This is not by any means the first such abridgment. In fact, the first one came out in 1577. This octavo abridgment of Ortelius's great massive work tells us a number of things. It has 123 maps in it. It's typical in going down format, in this case from large folio to octavo, with a concomitant fall in price range and therefore a change in the possibilities of readership. It also is very different in its use. Many of the great Ortelius atlases are, as you know, trophy copies. They are in elegant bindings and they show almost no sign of use. This is not the case when we look at the history of the octavo so-called pocket atlases of Ortelius's great work, which often show signs of active readership. This copy is in its original binding, and it's typical also of the world of abridgments in that it makes things smaller, but it also always is larger in a significant way. In this particular case, there is a, a star map added that was never in Ortelius, and two additional maps added at the end in order to give a kind of incentive to the buyer. This is very, very typical uh, of an abridgment 
um, marketing itself as an improvement. Cheaper, more available, a service to the public, and an opportunity to make some money in a stratified market. The market is always, always stratified. I don't think that we can understand the world of atlas consumption unless we countenance these small atlases as well, although they're seldom the object of collectors. It is well known that when Daniel Defoe came out with his so-called master work in 1706, that poem that none of you have read, called Yore Divino, and nor have I read the whole thing, uh, in 1706, it's true and well known that a piracy followed very, very quickly. It went from a folio to octavo, as you can see here. And, and many people know this history. Defoe was terribly upset and said that he lost a great deal of money on, on this piracy. Uh, but, but what's less uh, commonly remembered is that that's not what destroyed the folio publication. Instead, it was the abridgments that came out very rapidly thereafter that dominated the market. Here you see uh, one of them very closely set with some of the notes uh, and, and an advertisement at the end of one, the 12 books of Yuri Divino sold at first for 13 shillings and then for five because the piracy drove down the price. And now you can get the whole thing in half sheets for half a penny a piece so you can pay sixpence and get the epitome of the whole poem. There is a competing abridgment at a penny a piece, so for 12 pence, one shilling, you can get the whole thing. It is these abridgments that dominate the market. But they're little known partly because they have such a low survival rate. And they weren't collected at the time. And so we need to think as we, as we contemplate the world of abridgments, and as I suggest, their ubiquity in the 18th century, we need to think about what has been left to us. What is the nature of historical record that we interrogate? This is an abridgment of uh, the three books of Robinson Crusoe. Those of you who are readers of the library, that excellent bibliographical journal, will know that according to the investigations of one scholar, about 75% of the surviving titles from the 18th century of Robinson Crusoe are abridgments, 75% more or less. Now, it's all well and good for us to say, ah, yes, but here's an abridgment of the three books, and it's not the real Robinson Crusoe. It's not the real thing. It's not what we as scholars ought to pay any attention to. 
But if 75% of the surviving copies are abridgments, and abridgments had much lower survival rates than full larger copies, more about that later on, then how did most people read their Robinson Crusoe? And therefore, what was the real Robinson Crusoe, as it were, for Defoe's contemporaries and for the contemporaries of his children and grandchildren? This, it seems to me, is a salutary question to ask. And it seems to me that we ought to think about doing the history of reading less on the basis of uh, anecdotal, anecdotal remarks that come our way and more by starting with the materiality of the textual artifact. Reading practices are always materially conditioned. They're also socially conditioned, but they're invariably materially conditioned. So um, here's the Pilgrim's Progress and we see the famous Felix Farley in Bristol, the third edition of Bridge by John Wesley, and a fifth edition as well. And uh, that book everybody knows, everybody wants a copy, but the manners of the ancient Christians, multiple editions for Mr. Wesley again. And um, Nicodemus, or a treatise on the fear of man, sixth edition, really, really? And um, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, another one I haven't read myself. And, um, oh, we see that there's an interesting distribution network in, of course, all Mr. Wesley's preaching houses. Huh. And then if we look at ESTC and we do a little bibliometric analysis and we study the Wesley bibliography, we find out that he is responsible for the publication of about a hundred abridgments, a hundred titles, not a hundred editions. Many hundred editions. Interesting, interesting. Why was Wesley such a such a sedulous abridger? What was he doing? Well, um, for most of the 18th century, a pamphlet was pretty expensive. Newspapers went up to threepence and then fourpence. Single play was up to two shillings. Novels were half a crown, three shillings in a <laughs> trade binding. A large octavo could cost five shillings per volume. Books were luxury goods. Books were expensive. Print was a precious commodity. Let's get a little bit of a consumer price index to understand the truth of this. Well, one shilling and six was the price of a chicken. You see beef and so on and so forth, tea, and you can compare the prices yourself. An average laborer's annual rent was one and eight. Okay. Consider that as we consider some of the prices today. So Samuel Johnson suggested that every readership had a correspondent 
place in the market. It's Rambler 145, if you'd like to look it up. But it seems to me that we need to consider the cultures of collecting. We need to consider the fact that it was not a, a pursuit of gentlemen and gentle women to collect abridgments. It was not the stuff of 19th century institutions of higher learning to get the Hill's piracies of Defoe in those halfpenny parts. In fact, one bibliographer in the 19th century described such books as coarsening. So, so these coarsening books, these books for the so-called ostensibly lower reading public, which I don't believe at all because time is as much a precious commodity as money is, so, um, but, but it seems to me that the cultures of collecting tend toward the highbrow. And so we need to consider what survives and why it survives. Survival rates are not an entirely stochastic process. It is the case that copies of pine survive because that Horace was beautiful and it was in gorgeous bindings. Copies of an abridgment of the fourth edition of the Christian way does not survive because it's not beautiful, it's not bound, and it's not considered culturally relevant. Hmm. It's also the case that we need to consider Roger Stoddard's law. Stoddard's law, I'll refresh your memory, goes like this. Bigger books linger longer, little books last least. Bigger books linger longer, little books last least. So as we consider abridgments going down format, these are little books. Very few of them were sold in trade bindings. And think about it for a moment, if you will. If you were trying to save money by buying books sewn in wrappers rather than in a trade binding, you might never have that book bound. You might just read it as a paperback and then hand it on and then someone else hand it on and hand it on and share it until it's read to bits. Because the unbound book does not survive. But bigger books linger longer. These are the little books that last least. These two things together, the cultures of collecting and the survival rates being um, related to Stoddard's law, conspire to make the surviving historical record for abridgments probably much less than it actually was seems to me very likely that there are many, many editions with no representative copies extant. So it's also the case that we as lofty scholars tend to denigrate the world of abridgments. Here is a humorous and inverting, a diverting history of Tom Jones. And it is indeed humorous and diverting to see that the whole of Tom Jones is compressed into so small a compass. 
and we can denigrate this and we can say, ha, do we really think that this is Tom Jones? This is not the real thing at all. We can sniff and say, well, of course, when Grandison and Pamela and Clarissa are abridged, epistolarity is lost. We are the victims of the abridger's summary. And therefore, Richardson's art is forever compromised, and these are not worthy of our attention. But in fact, there is a whole strata of readership I submit to you who never, ever, ever looked upon the seven, the eight volumes in seven of Richardson's Clarissa, but who had ready access to a very short abridgment in one volume duodecimo. So we also have the tendency of some famous abridgers, oh, Oliver Goldsmith, Samuel Johnson, to denigrate the abridging of others. But the abridging business was a major undertaking in the 18th century. So he says people who abridged, they didn't even know how to write some of them. So they took this up instead. But here I have taken the field, and so my abridgment is better than anybody else's. And he even abridges his own abridgments. And they sell two. We can go from two volumes octavo to one volume duodecimo because the market is always stratified. And the duodecimo runs and runs and runs. And there's an easy tendency to say, ah, oh, yes, but this was for schoolboys. Perhaps, in part. So it is the case that so many different kinds of books were abridged throughout the century. I myself have closely examined and tried to offer a kind of bibliographical analysis of only about 230 different abridged editions so far in my undertaking of trying to understand the world of abridgments. But my, bibli my bibliometric analysis of abridgments in the period, which come under a whole variety of guises, suggests that I've examined far less than 10% of the representative titles. So here we see Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, uh, different sheets, I promise you, and uh, a very successful abridgment, but not even um, advertised as such. Um, it's all very well for us to, to think about Johnson's Dictionary as those two great folio volumes, and those are certainly important, especially lexicographically, those are extremely important. But it is the case that the common reader, as Johnson called him with affection, read the abridged octavo, an abridgment undertaking by Johnson himself, who was a defender of the activity of abridging. And that, in the 29 years of Johnson's lifetime, after the 55 dictionary, sold more than 35,000 copies. 
it outsold the folio by more than seven times. What's the real Johnson's Dictionary? What's the Johnson's Dictionary that people who are dictionary users, most dictionary users, knew? How does that change the way we see? How does that change our understanding of the constellations of objects that we need to be mindful of as we think about the strategies of reading, as we think about the social practices of reading, as we think about the availability of print for a diversified reading public throughout the century. It's so much even the case that dictionaries that had no relation to Johnson at all, uh, as Fleeman has demonstrated very well in his bibliography, uh, tagged themselves saying, well, we're like Johnson's dictionary. This is an abridgment when it's really not. There was no shame to being an abridgment at all. And of course, Johnson, the defender of abridgments, was himself relentlessly abridged. Um, here we see 25 authors from the lives of the poets uh, in the first 100 pages of the volume. Uh, why? Because this is a slim, slim book in the Hyde Collection at Harvard University. But what's happening here? It's making the lives of the poets available to a different level in the reading public. Everything was abridged. Everything that could be abridged was abridged. And I think that we need to think of abridging as part of the reprint trade. I think, generally speaking, we think of the reprint trade as somebody takes a book that's done well and republishes it. But we have to remember that market saturation happens, particularly at a, at a particular price point. And so it is the case that the reprint trade is more interesting than people just taking a title that's already been successful and putting it on the bed of the press again. Rather, taking a, a bestseller like the Micrographia here and revivifying it, saying, oh, well, now we have made it better. This renders the present volume so small, it's a folio, but it's really much, much more intelligible than the original was. So now you can have it, and we've made it affordable for you in all its arresting quality. This is from a 1745 abridgment. As it turns out, there's a 1780 abridgment of the micrographia as well, different sheets. So, the inescapable bibliographical fact is the materiality of the textual artifact. And unless we grapple with that materiality, we never know what we are holding in our hands. Throughout this course of lectures, I have suggested that bibliographical practice as it is traditionally undertaken is not sufficient for understanding many of the different kinds of textual artifacts that one encounters in the 18th century. And that is, I believe, certainly the case. But it's also the case that if bibliography is not wholly sufficient, then the traditional intellectual protocols of bibliographical practice 
are absolutely <coughs> necessary for the conduct of book history again and again and again. Please understand me. I am not espousing an either or bibliography or book history. I believe that book history needs the intellectual rigor of bibliographical practice. But I also believe that bibliography has a lot to learn from book history, from its intellectual venturesomeness, from its capacious attitude toward culture. And I believe that bibliography needs to be in productive conversation with the rest of the object-oriented <coughs> discipline. Let me ask you, do you want to go to a physician who never studied human anatomy? I do not want to read the articles of a book historian who knows no bibliography and who is not alive to the force of the material object. In this particular case, we have a silent abridgment of Tom Jones. It's also a false imprint. And we know it's a false imprint. I don't know and I haven't been able to determine if the paper is actually from France or Switzerland. It's very hard to tell because the paper was moving back and forth. But in fact, this is not from London. This is a French production posing as a London production with a London bookseller's name on it to legitimate the translation of an English author. And you can only know that by interrogating the physical object bibliographically. Absolutely necessary. Not, I think, wholly sufficient. So, as we consider the world of abridgments, it will shock you, I think, to know that the interpretation of the Statute of Anne, the so-called Act for the Encouragement of Learning, protected abridgments under the law. So, famously in Giles versus Wilcox, the Lord Chancellor said, a real abridgment is a new book and it is not liable to any injunction or prosecution because it benefits the public and that abridgment of someone else's book now enjoys its own protection under the law. That is not the way we think of intellectual property. But that was the practice throughout so much of the 18th century. And so even a much later case says that there can be no injunction against a fair abridgment, but a true piracy, if somebody just takes a book and, and reprints the first half, there's no judgment in that. And therefore, because there's no judgment, it's not a new thing and therefore it should be penalized under the law. 
Boswell said to Johnson that he thought that this meant that you could just take the horn and the tail off a cow and sell it as a new thing. Johnson replied that it wasn't like that at all. It was really making an abridgment like getting the cow to have a calf. It's also the case that we are unused to the culture of serial excerpting. Uh, this particular uh, uh, set of excerpts and abridgments of Rasselas in the London Chronicle itself figured in an important court case and in the discovery it was proven that who was behind the publication of the first installment of Rasselas in the London Chronicle in the same week that the book was made public the proprietors of the press, Rasselas's owners, wanted this book to be excerpted in the public press. It's not the way we think about intellectual property, but the, the world I'm suggesting to you is more complicated. That the, the, There's a world of abridging and extracting, a world of epitomes, um, a world of improved editions that are cut down. Uh, that translation of Tom Jones with the false imprint, it's abridged by about a third, but because it's a translation, it's not acknowledged at all. So when we think about the world of abridgments, we can't just look for the word abridged or epitomized or extracts. We have to dig deeper. We have to know more. So, so it's the case that there's a whole a whole world of extracts out there, such as the beauties of English prose here from uh, 1772, and um, from George Kearsley, about whom we'll hear a little bit more later, we get the beauties of Johnson. And the beauties of Johnson becomes, he would have us believe, a kind of a bestseller. A set of extracts of Samuel Johnson uh, 1781 and a volume two in 1782. And here you can see some of them from the Houghton Library at Harvard University. And if you hold the books in your hand and you start to compare the sheets, a traditional bibliographical practice, you will discover that the second edition sheets are the same as the third edition sheets, and the third edition sheets are the same as the fourth edition sheets. So there are six editions in rapid succession. There are three. But Kearsley was trying to give his book a bump. Hmm. So again, we need both and. We need to think large, but look small. So it's the case that um, of course, this popular book, but not as popular as one might think just by reading the ESTC, uh, goes to Dublin, goes to Philadelphia eventually because of, of the celebrity of the author and the accessibility, the price point, the, the, the joys of dipping in, of miscellaneity, and so on and so forth. Um, it's also the case that Kearsley was brilliant at marketing 
And um, when Johnson died in 84, he began immediately one of a legion of people working on a life of Johnson. And uh, when that life of Johnson comes out, at the end of the volume, there is this engraved plate to show Johnson's handwriting is what we're told is the purpose of this. But look what the Johnsonian handwriting is. Mr. Johnson sends compliments to Mr. Kearsley and begs the favor of seeing him as soon as he can. Mr. Kearsley is desired to bring with him the last edition of uh, that he has honored with the name of Beauties. So there's a marketing plug for his Beauties of Johnson in the, in the life that he publishes. It's also the case that um, another runaway bestseller, Kearsley would have us believe, is the Beauties of Stern. And here you see a copy of the fourth edition. And very cleverly, in all the editions, he says, well, you need to know that we've taken this out of the new edition of Stern's work in 10 volumes. That's two guineas. This is half a crown, two shillings and sixpence. So right away, there's a comparison here. If you are fortunate enough to work in the Bodleian Library, one of the only places in the world where this can be done, and to compare the sheets carefully, you will find that in this case, the third, the fourth, and the fifth editions are all identical. Uh, they have some varying front matter, but the, the body of the text is, is really the same. One of the problems with the careful study of abridgments is that because they survive in such low numbers, to interrogate them in a thoroughgoing manner is extremely difficult because they seldom exist in sufficient copies that survive to be able to do this kind of work. The field itself began to reflect on this tradition of beauties and to satirize itself in some ways by publishing books of extracts labeled the deformities. And we get the beauties of Fox, North, and Burke, obviously published in 1784 when the coalition comes about. And these beauties are themselves in order to show how strange it is, given that they have been at enmity with each other for such a long time, that these gentlemen should come together. Arbitrary power, Mr. Fox charges Lord North with the design of spreading it throughout the British Empire, and so on. So they're just example after example of how they impugn one another in order to critique the coalition all under the ironic aegis of beauties. And when Stockdale has had that run for a while, he, and here you can see the prospectus for that and the prospectus for the beauties and the deformities. Um, Bodleian Library doesn't have the deformities. This is clearly a great lacuna in the collection. Um, but this, this whole world of extracts is part and parcel with the habits of reading in the 18th century. Hence the efflorescence of the magazines, for instance. It seems to me a strange thing that Mayo's work, Mayo's seminal work, 
in which he identified 1,375 works of fiction in magazines between 1740 and 1815 has not resulted in greater research by others in succeeding generations. We haven't really begun to countenance, to attend to some of the very important bibliographical work of our forebears. So here you see the beauties and deformities of Fox and North and Burke. And a whole uh, new way of lampooning the beauties tradition and using it for political satire. You don't have to write the whole poem. Just say, I'm going to give you the extracts and comment on them. In this case, a critique of Sheridan. So the world of extracts is not new with the 1770s, nor even with um, the, the early part of the century. But it has a great efflorescence, it seems to me, to which we need to attend in the 1780s. And many of you will know Vicesimus Knox's elegant extracts a book that runs and runs and runs, supposedly intended for school children, but really a book, it seems to me, that uh, is an aspirational book for the, as it were, rising lower classes. And then there are all these spin-offs of the elegant extracts, whether they're elegant epistles or just taking the poetry out of a volume. Print breeds print. And then, yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is a book of extracts of the elegant extracts. <laughs> this is the world in which voyages are published. The world of the extract, the world of the abridgment. If we don't understand this, we don't really understand, I think, what is happening in the publication of voyages throughout the century. Here, uh, 1699, uh, set of abridgments that was quite popular. Um, here, a uh, book commonly known as Churchill, originally published in 1704, and then in six large folio volumes, very expensive. And here we see the 1705 answer to that which then was republished in a larger version in 1744 with the second volume a bit later, the market is competitive. And this is abridgments and extracts, and the other one is claiming a wholeness. Uh, so the market is going at one another again and again. That 1744 first volume then spawns uh, two volumes in 1745, by the people who are behind the Churchill publication in order to compete again. The market is highly competitive, and uh, booksellers are going after the reader. And I think that's important to know. This is how we might best understand the seven-volume uh, compendium of voyages published by a consortium of booksellers in 1756 perhaps uh, capitalizing on the rage for voyages since Anson has come home. And uh, this book is quite well known because, of course, Smollett had a part in doing the abridging. Uh, and they say, well, there's so many voyages that have come out, and the size and the price of a folio will intimidate the reader. So let's publish this in seven volumes, duodecimo, and then everyone can have access. Uh, 
It is the case that when Cook came home after his first voyage, it was rather like uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins coming home from the moon. The anticipation of the publication of that first voyage was great indeed, so great that John Hawksworth was paid the rather absurd sum of 6,000 pounds to produce the text of the voyages. As many of you will know, in sporting parlance, he choked. And um, although the book sold very well, its critical reception was disastrous. And uh, this then whetted the appetite for what would happen when the second of Cook's voyages would be published after he came home. The Admiralty had learned its lesson. They let Cook speak in his own voice now, which turned out was much better, much more reliable. But the anticipation for the news from these far-flung voyages is, is difficult for us to capture. Here we see that George Kearsley again, his abridgment of the first and the second voyage, which becomes a kind of a template for many subsequent abridgments, and it's, it's four shillings in a, in a large octavo, and um, he's trying to undercut a market here for uh, four volumes octavo at one and four. So he's taking advantage, uh, he's creating a place in a stratified market. And the engravings seem to me super important over and over and over again. There is a thirst for the visual which every abridger of these voyages is very careful to satisfy. Here we see after, uh, of course, Cook famously dies in the third voyage, and um, when the ship finally comes home, there's great thirst to know what happened, and Rickman uh, tries to take advantage of that, and this is the first published account of the third voyage, the first published account of uh, the death of Cook. And this, ladies and gentlemen, of course, then gets pirated and republished in Ireland, in Philadelphia, uh, in Boston, throughout the United Kingdom, because this is news. And so Rickman uh, occupies the first beginning uh, three years before the official count comes out. And, and the importance of this book uh, can scarcely be overestimated. Here's the Dublin, and you see the thirst for novelty, that thirst for the visual, so important. The report from another world. Ladies and gentlemen, finally, on a June day in 1784, the three quarto volumes of Cook's third voyage are published. They are published for the enormous sum of four and a half guineas. 
for those of you who don't think in guineas, four and a half guineas is four pounds, 14 shillings, and sixpence. That is more than a laborer's annual wage. 2,000 copies were produced. The entire first edition sold out in the late afternoon on the third day of sale. Such was the avidity of the reading public. And such was the stratification of the market that those at the upper end had to have this. And I think that's important to understand the, the frenzy that the third voyage uh, generated. The first abridgment to come out was naturally one in parts, because you could get that first part out. Very, very clever gambit. Uh, so, so here it was published uh, each volume in six parts, four volumes. And once you had people subscribing to the parts, you had them. That was the theory. So, so it's clearly an abridgment, an abridgment that's protected under the law because judgment is involved, and you can see in the direction line over and over again the part issue of these books. And, and you can attend to the subscription list and understand how it was marketed and, and who it was for. But that doesn't stop there at all, because here is Mr. Kearsley again, who is going to occupy the scene, and his is going to go for four shillings sewn, just like the abridgment of one and two, a large octavo, expensive, but well within the market with lots of illustrations. Again, Cook lying prostrate on the strand, the sensational scene as the kind of entryway into the volume. It's an undoubted fact that not one person in 50 can afford to buy those three volumes in quarto for four and a half guineas. I will do the public a great service, says Kearsley, and I will publish it for you for just four shillings. So here, it's a substantial book, there's no question. So the next out of the box is um, Alexander Hogg, who also publishes in parts and um, uh, these, these parts are a very large format, a big, large folio with, with a great number of illustrations. They're six penny parts. They're 80 parts. Uh, so instead of paying 20 guineas for those three voyages together in their originary editions, well, we'll give you the whole thing for just four pounds. So for a fifth of what you would pay, we'll give you a very well-produced version of this. And so the poor and the rich will be able to have this. And the high purposes of the king and sponsoring these voyages will thus be fulfilled for the people of Great Britain, he says. And you can see typical double column with the plates. But look what he does. This is really mean. Cook one, cook two, 
which has already been around for quite a while. And then he says, well, we're going to give you the voyages of Byron, Wallace, Carter, Mulgrave, Anson, Drake. And now, after you paid for all those six penny parts, now we're going to give you, at the very end, the third voyage. And then, for you, having paid four pounds for this unbound, to add insult to injury, now that it's had its run, people can buy it bound in calf in two and eight. And you can see it's a substantial volume. This, because of Stoddard's law, has a much higher survival rate than many of the other copies. Because it's a bigger book, it lasts longer. Um, it's also the case that in the back of that book, and many copies are lacking the advertisement, in the back of that book, yes, there's a new collection of voyages, and you can buy them in six penny parts. So more abridgments ensue. I think that what's so remarkable about Fielding's abridgment, besides the, 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 the reprint of the pictures and these four volumes of Octavo, is that Fielding, along with a consortium of other booksellers, was already an undertaker for the first of the third voyage abridgments. So he's putting competing abridgment out himself in order to gain another piece of the market. It is the case that then Kearsley's voyages, uh, Kearsley's version of the third voyage runs and runs and runs, although of course the abridgment is abridged. So here we see it from the press of Isaiah Thomas in just nine and a half sheets, including the prelims, way pared down. And the productive capacity in Philadelphia is a bit different. It's in seven sheets in 18 mo. And here, here we see a combination of all three voyages based on the Kearsley abridgments published in Boston as late as 1797. Take a guess. Did most people read the three voyages in those three octavo volume, uh, three quarto <coughs> volumes, or did most people read the voyages of Cook in Kearsley? That's not hard. That's not hard. And yet, it's not the real thing. It's not what we collect. It's not what we study. It's somehow beneath our contempt. It's cheap. It's coarsening. It's for the lower masses. In the 21st century, do we think like that anymore? And yet, bibliographical attention has been focused over and over again exclusively at the high end and not at the large part of the reading public. I think it's important to understand every textual artifact as a coalescence of human intention. It is an interpretation of the market, the potential readership. It is produced with a price point in mind. It is often an indication of the productive capacity as well as the consumer capacity 
of the market in which it's produced. If we compare these two accounts of the Peru Islands, we can see one in Wilmington, Delaware, the other in Catskill, New York. And this, I think, is a good object demonstration for us, object lesson of um, how we need to read the textural object in history as an indication of what's possible, both in terms of a market share and in terms of production value. Here we see an early 19th century version produced in Hudson, New York, in just two sheets. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, how will we do the history of reading? Will we rely on anecdotal evidence and extrapolate from that when so often it's hard to understand what an annotation or diary entry really means? And is a recorded instance of reading not perforce somehow atypical and self-conscious because it's recorded? I do not wish to denigrate the evidence. I wish merely to say that the history of reading ought to begin with the materiality of the textual artifact. <laughs> However, a note of caution. As Jan Fergus has elegantly shown in her study of the readership of the Ladies Magazine, a publication attended for a female readership if ever there was one. Jan Fergus is able to show that quite a few men were subscribers and perhaps even more interesting, schoolboys in Daventry, at Eton, and at rugby school clandestinely took the ladies' magazine in order to discover who were these strange seraphic animals <laughs> and how to make sense of the other sex. So it's always the case that one may read against the grain. It's always the case that the determinism of the textual artifact is not absolute. And we need to bear that in mind clearly. Nonetheless, it is important invariably to attend to the ways that materiality makes culturally instantiated meanings. It's important, I think, to attend to the canons of evidence and inference, of argument and omission as we consider the conduct of our bibliographical and book historical studies. Not to police the boundaries between them, but rather to try to think more capaciously, to try to think more creatively about the ways that we encounter the book in all its historical complexity, in all its gorgeous pluriformity, in the richness of the human communities who made the book as a coalescence of intentional objects, 
it seems to me deeply wrong-headed for us to embrace the cod liver oil theory of bibliography. Here, you won't like this, but you must take it because it's good for you. Rather, I think we should be saying the intellectual protocols of bibliography need to be expanded. Our purview must be widened. And yet bibliography, as traditionally practiced at its best, is a beautiful and powerful and intellectually elegant thing. We should teach people the protocols of bibliographical practice, the ways of seeing and the habits of mind of the best bibliographers, not because it's good for them in a medicinal way, but rather because it will help scholars in the future to produce results that are intellectually compelling. The future of bibliography must run in this direction as we humbly attend to the other object-oriented disciplines and respectfully contribute to the conversation about how to understand the production, dissemination, and use of the object in history. Ladies and gentlemen, a bibliographer's reach should seldom exceed his or her grasp. For there is no substitute for the haptic knowledge that comes from holding the book in one's hands and subjecting it to close examination. But is it not the case that the library and the archive should not merely be a place of analysis, but also a place of wonder? Is it not the case that the future practice of bibliographical studies and their intellectual vitality depends upon thinking with a greater purview? It is time for us to extend the reach of bibliography, we must learn to imagine what we know. Thank you.